You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Thanks for joining us for another Walker webcast. Uh, I'm thrilled to have uh, my friend and China and U.S. politics expert, Evan Asnos, joining me again on the Walker webcast. There's a there's a story behind uh, Evan joining me today, which I'm going to tell in a second, but let me just do a quick intro to Evan so everyone listening in today who doesn't know Evan's great background uh, knows exactly who he is and what he does, and then we'll dive into it. So Evan Asnos is a journalist and author known for his work on politics and foreign affairs. He's a cum laude graduate of Harvard College. He joined the Chicago Tribune in 2002 after the 9-11 attacks and was assigned to the Middle East reporting for Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. He then became the China correspondent for the Tribune, living in Beijing from 2005 through 2013. He has published three books, Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, and most recently, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, a New York Times bestseller. Asnos has won the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award, has a weekly podcast called The Political Scene, and is a frequent contributor to New Yorker magazine. So first, Evan, thanks for joining me. The story behind you being here today or me reaching out, say, Evan, you got to come back on, was I was with a, a really good friend of mine, Bram Kramer, who's in the commercial real estate industry. He had just been in Singapore and South Korea. And his comment to me was, I was just meeting with a bunch of investors and they said, um, we're pulling our money from China and we'd love to put it into the United States. But with your Speaker of the House having just gotten voted out and Joe Biden and Donald Trump as the likely next president of the United States, we're really concerned about putting money into the United States right now. And so when Bram said that to me, I said, who do I know who can talk about why money's moving out of China and the the messed up nature of Washington today? And I said, I got to call Evan and get him on. So you came right back to me and said, I'd love to come on, but I'm in the process of writing up my recent trip to China to publish in the New Yorker magazine and your article, which just came out, uh, which is entitled China's Age of Malaise, uh, with a subtitle of um, Party Officials Are Vanishing, Young Workers Are Lying Flat, and Entrepreneurs Are Fleeing the Country. What does China's inner turmoil mean for the world? So after reading your article, Evan, my take on that is not good. Uh, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, thank you, Willie. Uh, it is a pleasure to be back with you. Uh, it's a real treat to be talking about this. I, I think it's pretty clear that we were um, sort of thinking in uh, very similar parallel cycles here at the very moment that you were uh, in touch very kindly. It was exactly as you say. I was just sort of trying to wrap my head around this complex puzzle. I mean, look, the short answer is right now, um, it feels as if there are very few pieces of dry land. I'm talking to you from 
Washington, D.C., um, you know, having been in Singapore and China and elsewhere in the course of this project. And uh, there are uh, dwindling pieces of territory anywhere where investors um, or, you know, frankly, geopolitical strategists feel as if they can reliably predict what the political process is going to produce. For a long time, China was um, what you might call, you know, autocratic but predictable. And um, recently, that predictability has become a lot more, um, uh, has become a lot less reliable because people say, I mean, just to give you a literal example, uh, if you're Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, you went over, you began to forge some agreements with your counterpart, the foreign minister. Uh, well, in June, uh, the foreign minister, as everybody knows now, um, disappeared. And initially it was described by the government as a health issue. Then later they said, we're just not going to say anything more about it. No information. Uh, the rumors which had been published in several places is that it involved an extramarital affair. Uh, but the strange fact, and this extends all the way into the U.S. government, I can tell you with some uh, confidence, is that nobody really knows. And when you're dealing with a system and you don't know what happened to the foreign minister, who is a, uh, the official who is a person, the designated person to deal with foreign systems, that makes us all begin to recalibrate our instruments a bit and make um, make some 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 new choices about how we think about China. As you point out in the article, the woman that he supposedly had an affair with has also gone missing. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Uh, she's a TV reporter named Fu Xiaotian, and uh, her social media has gone dark, and she's no longer appearing on television. Um, and you know, according to you know the rumor, and we just have to frame it that way because there is nothing firmer than that, except that it's a rumor that has been, um, that is kind of circulating among people who have been briefed by party officials, uh, is that it was, uh, that he is accused of having had an extramarital affair, which uh, produced a child in the United States, which then made him vulnerable to blackmail by foreign intelligence agencies. Full stop. We don't know anything more than that. So Evan, you start the article, which I think is an important historic context because many of us don't track China nearly as closely as you do and don't think about how China got to where it is today and then, if you will, the decline that it's experiencing right now. But you back up to Tiananmen Square and you talk about essentially a bargain that the Chinese government made with the people. And it said the bargain was essentially, we'll give you personal space uh, in exchange for political loyalty. And uh, personal space, from my read of your article, was not only a growing economy, not only a job, not only the ability to go and go to new cafes and go to an art museum, all the cultural things that came in with that, uh, but then a, a certain amount of, of of freedom, a certain amount of freedom of expression, a certain amount of freedom of movement and things of that nature. And as you go through kind of piece by piece, all of the component parts of that personal space, not just that you got an apartment, but personal space as it relates to what we believe is our rights as citizens in the United States of freedom um, have started to be eroded by Xi Jinping and the overall political infrastructure. Talk through what you just saw when you were back there and the things that are so dramatically different than when you lived there between 2005 and 2013. Yeah. What what I like to do, by the way, is to say, let's just like put it out, put it outside of the context of what we in the United States might recognize as personal space. It's almost it's irrelevant, really, from the Chinese perspective. Let's just say, what does the average Chinese citizen or entrepreneur or um, uh, 
a creator of ideas, creator of businesses, of organizations? What do they expect in their lives? Or just your average person, your average young person who is sort of getting, you know, out of high school, maybe getting out of college, embarking on the world. What do they anticipate? What do they expect? Well, after Tiananmen, essentially, um, the party realized that if they didn't want to follow the path of the Soviet Union, which is to say that it failed, in a sense, to accommodate a new age of telecommunications and of uh, expanding expectations of standard of living, that they had to come up with an alternative. They were very, they watched very, very closely what happened in the Soviet Union. We know that they did because they talk about it. Um, and so they said, we're going to allow, for instance, um, men and women to basically know that the party is not going to get involved in their family life. You know, the party, for people who don't know or remember, during the Cultural Revolution and everything around it, the party was deeply involved in your life. You would be, for instance, essentially put on a kind of political trial if you had an extramarital affair or if you, uh, you know, if you were doing something that was perceived to be contrary to the kind of revolutionary ethos, really the most intimate parts of your life were vulnerable to inspection. I mean, they used to track uh, women's uh, cycles, menstruation cycles in public, in a community. I mean, this was like, this is not abstract. And that was because they were keeping track of every element of person's life. After this decision, in effect, in the late, uh, in the early 90s, Deng Xiaoping and his peers said, we're not going to do that anymore. They never made this explicit, but it was just clear that they were going to, the words that they used was, give people um, room for courageous experimentation. That was Deng Xiaoping's term in order to prevent China from, as he said, stumbling like a woman with bound feet. All of these were ways of expressing, okay, we're not going to do the old thing. And these days, the party is once again, to give you just one example, back involved in people's most intimate lives. I mean, they are calling for an uptick in marriage and birth rates because of the predicted demographic uh, shortfall of workers by the middle of the century. Everybody knows this by now, but they're going to have a 25% decline in the working age population by the middle of this century. Um, and so you actually have in some places, party officials, county officials, calling people up and saying, ah, oh, we see that you just recently got married. Uh, we think it'd be a great idea if you went about and started having children. There's a place in, uh, you know, an, a, another example is a place that is actually giving financial rewards for people to uh, marry um, uh, marry young uh, in order to be able to have the chance of having more kids. So all of this is just violating a kind of what had come to be assumed by young Chinese people and Chinese people in general, that they would have some realm of personal control, uh, even within the umbrella of political loyalty. And so that has produced a real sense of frustration. The words people use in Chinese are mimang and jusang. Mimang is uh, bewildered and, and jusang means disheartened. And this is a term that you hear from many people when you go and you talk to people at some length. Uh, but that's just one realm, and we can talk about the implications for business, economics, consumption, all that kind of stuff. Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate and advisory firms in the country. You start the communities. Our ideas and capital make them possible. And tune in to the Walker webcast, hosted by CEO Willie Walker, for exclusive insights on commercial real estate. So you also mentioned that she launched an anti-corruption campaign in 2012, which was very different from what you just talked about. And I was shocked by the numbers you put in there, Evan, that they've arrested or detained over 4 million Chinese people in the last decade. 
Yeah, that that is not my number. It is the official number, which is kind of fascinating. You know, they 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 put it out um, last year with a source of some pride. I mean, this is a since 2012. Just put that in perspective. About you know more than four million. It's now actually since then gone up to 4.7 million people have been officially investigated or punished. So they, they use the term punished for this 4.1 million number. What's amazing is you have to then take that figure and say that for each one of those individuals who has been investigated under the anti-corruption campaign, let's assume, just for the sake of discussion, let's assume that many of those people were in fact corrupt. Because in fact, there was a huge corruption problem. I don't think anybody disputes that. But what you have to then under sort of imagine is that for each of those people, you have a family unit, which is disrupted. Let's assume four to five, maybe four people whose lives have been sort of turned upside down. And then you have a, a world of peers and patronage networks that have also been um, at least disrupted and perhaps radicalized by that experience. The net effect is that you have, you know, you name the number, but some larger order of um, significant number of Chinese people who have been destabilized by the effect of that anti-corruption campaign, which is generally understood in, I, you know, it, when you talk to people about it as extending beyond anti-corruption, but really into the realm of kind of political discipline and loyalty uh, insurance. And so that is a huge group of people who are now um, frustrated and bewildered. Talk for a moment, Evan, about Xi Jinping and you, the, the, the nickname, I guess, that he has is the core. Um, and you mentioned that he views his best and closest friend to be Vladimir Putin as far as foreign leaders today. Um, right after Putin was uh, convicted of, well, not convicted, he was charged with war crimes uh, due to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Xi Jinping got on a plane and flew to Moscow and spent time with him uh, to uh, embolden their relationship and his support of Vladimir Putin. And Xi Jinping has been very strident in his comments about East versus West and Western democracies and and his um, uh, lack of, uh, if you will, I don't think it's fair to say respect. He just he, he is he is trying to kind of tee up this East versus West conflict. Um, it's a completely different way of leading China uh, in the modern era. Um, and there, as you write, he had a mother who lived to, I believe, 94 and a father who lived to 88 and he's in his mid 60s. So he's probably around for a while longer. I mean, this looks like this is on a on on a on, on a path towards no type of, if you will, reversion back to what you talked about from when you lived in China from 2005 to 2013. Yeah, I think um, he is, you know, in a way, the the useful reference point was that his predecessors used to use a phrase that was um, popularized by by Deng Xiaoping. A lot of people have heard it, which is that China should hide its strength and bide its time and its dealings with the West. That was the uh, it would be, the shorthand was it for it was hide and bide. That should be the way that China should deal with the West. Uh, basically, don't irritate the United States, build up this mutually beneficial relationship, um, and eventually China will have its opportunity to flourish. Xi Jinping has a very different view. I mean, his term, the, the one that he has used is that the the East is rising and the West is declining. Uh, he does not use the term it's that it, China should hide its strength and bide its time. Um, we, the idea that Putin is his closest and best friend is his precise language. It's exactly what he has described him as before 
many times. They've uh, visited. They've they've met now something like forty two times. Uh, he's met met him more than any other foreign leader. Um, they but there was a moment that I describe in the piece when, as you say, Willie, that you know Xi Jinping went to visit Putin right after the International Criminal Court had issued these charges. And they had this moment standing in the doorway at the exit of the Kremlin when Xi Jinping said to him in Chinese, he said, and the translators there, he said, you know, we are, we the world are undergoing changes unseen in a century. And you and I are leading the charge. And Putin responds, I agree. And in a way, this is an important recognition of where Xi Jinping's mind is. It's not a value judgment. He is quite convinced that he is correct about this, that he's right about taking this position. He thinks that the the West's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine is both morally and strategically and historically flawed, and he is not joining that side. Um, I think, you know, there is also a, a conversation to be had about what he makes of Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the degree to which that might have a deterrent effect on him. Um, there's a, a sort of robust debate about that. But the point in the short term is Xi Jinping, as you say, he's a 70-year-old man. He is His mother is still alive at 96, in fact. His, his uh, father lived to 88. Xi Jinping is now in his third term in office. He's removed any constraints on the presidency. There is no formal constraints on the general secretary's job, which is the really important one, or on chairman of the Central Military Commission. He will be in this job as long as he chooses. And to tie it into your previous point, when you've locked up four plus million people, and embittered their attended circles of supporters, so let's call it 16 million, um, it makes it very hard to go off into a gentle retirement with the knowledge that something like that is not going to happen to you. He locked up members of his previous generation. Anybody who watched the last party Congress saw his predecessor, Hu Jintao, um, leave the stage abruptly, sort of let off. So there's a way in which um, Xi Jinping can stay and probably must stay for a, a long enough period of time until he can ensure his own security. So from an economic standpoint, Evan, you, you point out a number of things in your article that I think are important for people to keep in mind. First of all, you mentioned it a moment ago that the working age population is expected to decline by 25% from its peak in 2011. So right. I think everyone has this impression that China is just growing to the, to, to the, to the sun and it's not, and you talk about their challenges as it relates to their birth rate and getting people to have kids. But you also point out that it's still as formidable as ever, that it's the largest trading partner with 120 nations on earth. It's um, It has at least 80% of the supply chain for all the solar panels in the world. Uh, and it's the large, world's largest maker of electric vehicles and a number of other things that we all rely on China for. So this kind of conflict of political turmoil, a crackdown, uh, a leader who does not seemingly have the support of his people anymore, yet at the same time is using an iron fist to keep them all in line. And at the same time, an economy that we're all dependent upon. When I was talking to someone yesterday about sort of the punchline of your article, which is China is very clearly in decline, my friend said to me, well, that's good. Like, we don't have to worry about them being, you know, competing with us for being the world power. And I said, I'm not so sure that's the right conclusion to make here. As it relates to the economic strength of China and the need for them to stay in the global economy, how should we think about that and whether there will be a continued disintermediation 
of trade with China and people like the United States pulling things back to their own shores, or whether we have to continue to invest in China because they are now at such a size and scale that you can't do without them? Well, I think um, there are a few things going on there. Number one, um, you know, I, I'll I'll put a nuance on uh, the great way you put it a moment ago, which is this question of, you know, does does Xi Jinping still have the support of his people? I think to be blunt about it, what we would say is that he doesn't have all that much support uh, that is optional. Yeah, a lot of people will still go along and say, sure, this is, you know, I'm I'm still in. Look, a lot of people, you have to remember, you know, most of China uh, is agricultural. There are a lot of people in China who are just happy not to have an agricultural tax for the first time in a thousand years, meaning that like they are genuinely still like, well, things are better for me than they were for my parents and my grandparents. But what's really important here and what this story was trying to crystallize and capture was that some of the people who have done the most, meaning let's call them what they are, sort of elites, basically people who have really driven the frontier of China's development forward over the last generation, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, um, investors, um, the 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 big ideas people, the one, the, the writers, the, the, the folks who kind of like any culture, um, they play an outsized role in shaping what the mood is because they're sort of upstream in many cases of popular opinion. That is a, a fact that they are just, you, you sort of see in, in all kinds of ways how they have lost faith. And that's what we have to kind of, if we're trying to anticipate out into the future, that's what we have to uh, look at. I think that the, you know, the question of, in effect, is China still investable? You know, Gina Raimondo said when she was visiting recently, she said a lot of American investors have concluded China is not investable. I think she's saying that partly as a way of forcing them to say, well, no, here's the ways in which we are going to make sure that this is still a place where Americans want to put their money. Um, I, I get the sense that, look, some of the data is quite clear on this. People have been removing a lot of money. Uh, over the course of the last few years. I think part of that is just because it was coming from a very high place. There really was this huge expectation a few years ago that you know China is going to be autocratic on its own terms. It's going to continue to be a place that is you know um, allergic to democracy, but that it wanted to maintain as much as possible the idea that it was hospitable to foreign money, foreign businesses. And I think that the that there has been a, a recognition recently that it is just a much more um, dangerous place it, to have your to have your uh, to have your money and to have your um, expectations. Prime example: earlier this year, they passed an expanded anti-espionage law, which means that they can go in and they can arrest people or raid an office. Take you know, like Bain as an example, consulting firm, long history in China. Their office was raided. Um, the Mintz Group, another due diligence firm, was raided. Their uh, local employees were arrested. Um, you've seen that a lot of big law firms are trying to kind of bifurcate their uh, operations. So they'll say, okay, we're splitting off our Chinese arm. We're no longer associated with our Chinese arm. Or you take Sequoia, for instance, which said, okay, we're going to take our Chinese arm and it's going to become a separate company. Now we're just not going to continue to do exactly as we were before. Look, some of these places are figuring out ways where they can still sort of cross-pollinate and kind of move, um, move some of their um, assets among these different elements, but there is a clear trend now for people saying we have to build a firewall. This is not a term I'd used in the article, but I think that's sort of how it's being experienced. Build a firewall between some of your operations outside the country and what you choose to continue doing inside China because uh, the Chinese government is determined to have as much 
ability as possible to reach into organizations that want to have access to the country um, and uh, dictate the terms on which they operate. It's really interesting that you talk about that bifurcation, if you will, or Chinese Chinese wall um, in companies. Some used to do it because they thought they'd get a higher multiple on their Chinese operations. So Yum Grands, for instance, has Yum, and then they spun out Yum Yum China uh, because the growth that they were seeing in KFC and their other brands over in China was so much greater than they were seeing in other parts of the world. I, I noted this morning that Yum Brands is off 8% year to date on Yum and Yum China is off 18% year to date. Um, and so you would think sort of all things equal, uh, there's a big downdraft as it relates to their China exposure. And they did it, I think, to try and get a bigger multiple. But now that's lagging because of all the things that you just talked about. Yeah, I think, look, as is often the case, you know, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. I think there is a real feeling right now that um, as the economy has kind of returned to more normal proportions. Look, I, this is, I think, an important point we have to we have to inject into this conversation at some point is nowhere am I predicting or are sort of serious analysts predicting that China is going off a cliff tomorrow. That's not likely. I mean, in realistic terms, look, the IMF predicts whatever it is, something like 4.2% growth this year. I think, you know, let's assume that it kind of stays somewhat in that neighborhood over the course of the next few years. Um, that's a, you know, the, by some measurements, that's a that's a terrific economy. The only problem is that's not the economy that people sort of expected. And, um, and I think more importantly is that sort of within that culture to the degree, if you believe that there are such things as animal spirits, if you believe that sort of sentiment and mood and culture matters within an economic ecosystem. That's the kind of stuff you should be looking at today. And that's what was just kind of, you know, I was getting these big blinking red alarms from people when they would say to me things like, look, in my company, and this is not an abstract example, this is a real example. I mean, here's a, there's somebody who told a friend that they're, uh, he's a, this guy's a chip designer, works for a, a university lab, and he's now spending so much of his time on political thought work. This is an, an order that was sort of passed down from the party over the last year or two, that you now have to spend a lot of your time working on Xi Jinping thought, meaning studying it, reading books about it, taking tests about it, going to lectures on it. That is less time. As he as this guy said, that is time that is actually taken away from the work I'm supposed to be doing on designing chips. I mean, at a certain point, this is it's sort of where the abstract political objectives of Xi Jinping and the party are colliding with the real world constraints and expectations people have about their work lives and their private lives. And that collision is what we're beginning to see in real time. Two other data points, Evan, that you bring up in your article that I think are super important and to your point about China not going away. Um, you point out that China now exports more to the developing world than it does to the United States, Europe, and Japan combined. So their tentacles into Latin America, into Africa, into the Middle East are more extensive than they are with the United States, Japan, and Europe. Uh, yeah. And I thought that was an interesting one. But then you also point out as it relates to inflows to China, that JP Morgan pointed out that in Q2 of 2023, there was less foreign direct investment in China than there has been, it's the first lowest level in 26 years. And so this memo has kind of gone pretty far and wide as it relates to things are shifting in China and it might not be the greatest place for you to be putting your your your, your free free capital. 
Yeah, I think there has been a real recognition. Um, that statistic, which you just mentioned, is is quite important because it is a sign that places are saying, all right, what is the risk associated with being involved in these enterprises? And it's not just risk of Chinese government policy. It's also about U.S. government policy. I think that what we've seen is that there's been a feeling that the U.S. and China are now into this downward spiral of relations in which the U.S. is putting more and more constraints on how you can invest in China, on the technology exports from this country, on the role that U.S. persons and uh, U.S. money can play in uh, the development of Chinese technology that has any potential dual use uh, for military applications, and that that trend line is not going to change with uh, an, an, an election in 2024. That is a, a sort of new normal that we should expect. Now, I will say it doesn't mean that it's going, you know, spiraling all the way down into conflict. In fact, I would argue that we're actually sort of heading towards a slightly different scenario. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute. But um, I think to the, the the point that you described about this kind of what we're seeing is this parting of the paths. That is really what's happening. And it's not decoupling in the in the fullest sense. It's not like Americans are just, you know, pulling up stakes and pulling their companies out. No, it's it's de-risking. I mean, that is actually what's happening. People are just saying, when possible, I want to reduce the ways in which I am exposed to political forces beyond my control, either in Washington or in Beijing. And that means you're going to see continued economic activity between these two. But the the most reliable force on the fact that China is going to become less entangled with the West is China. They are describing constantly, Xi Jinping uses the term self-reliance. That's his one of, you know, if you study his speeches, you look at his statements, that's exactly what he wants. He wants more self-reliance in technological terms and also self-reliance in political terms. He doesn't want to be subject in effect to sort of the pressures that the U.S. and its allies can bring as they have on Russia. And so you saw just a couple of weeks ago, very vivid demonstration of this. He had the Belt and Road Initiative Forum in Beijing in which Vladimir Putin uh, made you know basically his first major foreign trip since this uh, since the uh, since, since he was hit with war crimes charges, he was the guest of honor in Beijing, and the the countries that were represented there were very much not the countries that you see represented at a you know at a at a at a Western um, Western alliance meeting. China is imagining and ultimately operationalizing an alternative set of relationships and economic dependencies that it thinks is going to underlie its future. So one final thing on China, and then we're going to roll back here to the United States and why the Singaporean and South Korean investors are concerned about investing in the United States. Um, and back to your original point, Evan, which is just that there's not a lot of dry, dry ground around the world today. Um, one of the things you say is whether China is rising or falling, some people say that they are going to become more aggressive. And that immediately goes to Taiwan. Um, and uh, yours and my friend, James Stravitis, wrote a, a, a great book. Um, a fictional book about uh, the invasion of Taiwan by China and what that would lead to basically World War III. Um, and in James's book, I think it, the title of it is 2032. And so I think he thought 2032, that China wouldn't start moving that way until then. There's been a lot of talk recently as it relates to activity in the South China Sea and China kind of testing the United States. Um, what's your take given Ukraine, the relationship between China and Russia, and where Xi Jinping is right now as it relates to his economy and his populace and things of that nature, the chance that they get aggressive on Taiwan and that we've got another conflict in 
the Pacific to go along with the, what's going on right. in the Middle East as well as in Europe. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, that is, I, I have to give the most kind of forlorn chuckle at the idea that, I mean, it's almost unbearable to imagine, but here we are in a world where, you know, the Middle East is engulfed in a conflict, uh, the Ukraine uh, and Europe are engulfed in a conflict, and the prospect of something in Asia is terrifying. And also, I think there has been some talk that people say, well, maybe this is the moment that Xi Jinping would exploit in order to do a, make a move on Taiwan because the West is distracted. I don't actually buy that theory. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think there are reasons to uh, th that might actually be reassuring. Um, and so I, I think y there has been over the last few years this growing uh, ascendant view in Washington where 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 I live and, and elsewhere that as China's economy slows down, that it might seek to build nationalism at home and also uh, try to seize the initiative by going into Taiwan while it still has the economic strength to do it before the United States has kind of reinvigorated its Asian Pacific military strength uh, that and that that would be the time to do it. And, and you know, I think uh, that the What's important to note, though, is that that actually has begun to generate a lot of pushback from military strategists who are real experts on China's military here in the United States, and also from the U.S. intelligence community and from the Pentagon, actually. I mean, if you listen recently, this year, 2023, the Pentagon and the intelligence community have adopted a, a, a mantra that they repeat over and over, which is that they say that they think that an attack, a Chinese attack on Taiwan is neither imminent nor inevitable. And the reason they say that is because they're, you know, I think it's crept into a lot of the conversation. Well, we imagine that China is just, you know, uh, just itching to go into Taiwan, seize the semiconductor and, and off they go into history. It doesn't really actually map onto what they're seeing in, in the intelligence agencies in Washington. And I think it's important to point out, look, it's not as if the intelligence agencies have a reason to downplay the possibility of conflict. You'll remember that most kind of conventional wisdom was, oh, Putin would never be crazy enough to go into Ukraine. This would be a huge mistake. And all the smart analysts were saying it up until the last minute. The U.S. intelligence was actually saying, no, we see real signs of movement on that. If you talk to people on the U.S. side, they'll say, we are not seeing the same kinds of signs. Now, that may change because they didn't see signs of movement into Ukraine until a certain number of months beforehand. And if that changes, you can be sure you're going to hear about that from the U.S. government side. But for the moment, what the U.S. knows, and this maps onto what people um, outside of government think, is that there is actually, in Chinese history, there is not much of a track record of diversionary war, as it's known. The idea that they would you know, seek to establish uh, domestic political support um, at a moment of weakness by going and doing something abroad. In fact, when you look at it, this is, you know, there's a, a professor uh, named Taylor Frabel at, at MIT who has uh, really done the, the sort of best work on the history of China's military behavior when it comes to these border conflicts. He says that when you look back at this over the scope of the last 75 years, what you find is that they tend to actually seek stability when they're going through problems at home. They say, we got enough problems to deal with domestically. Let's try to sort of calm things down on the foreign front. So, you know, Deng Xiaoping said after Tiananmen, he wanted, as he told his people internally, I want calm, calm, and more calm when it comes to foreign relations. So now the question is, is Xi Jinping going to depart from what Deng Xiaoping did on, on military affairs as much as he has on economic affairs? That's a real question. I will say, I think, and this is 
anybody who tells you they know what Xi Jinping is going to do on Taiwan is is really lying to you because nobody knows. Um, all you can do is make your best guesses. That line that you mentioned earlier, that was Taylor's good point about how there is a bit of a case these days in Washington that whether or not China is rising or falling, there are some people who will say it's going to get more aggressive. That uh, We don't have enough data to support that. I think at the moment, if I was making a bet, I'd probably say, I think that China is just as likely to get kind of um, consumed by internal political inciting uh, by the challenges of keeping its own enormous and 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 ultimately volatile population uh, satisfied on a daily basis, that the idea of going into trying to go into Taiwan without the confidence that you can win, without the confidence that your military is any stronger than than Xi Jinping than uh, Vladimir Putin's very damaged military was, that that is a, a risk that Xi Jinping is not likely to take. He does not have a history of being a huge risk taker on the geopolitical front. And um, I think just one other bit on this, I know this is a long answer, but it's obviously sort of the heart of the matter, is that um, I think that um, Xi Jinping recently, among in addition to the disappearance that you, we talked about at the very outset of the, of the foreign minister, uh, other people who have vanished recently in the high ranks of the party include the f- defense minister and also uh, three of the highest ranking officials in the rocket force, which is a major element of their military structure, includes uh, control over the nuclear arsenal, um, they have been disappeared. And we don't yet know if it was for corruption or for other reasons. But the word going around, again, a rumor, is that it was probably related to a big corruption probe that's been going on in the military. The reason I mention all that is if Xi Jinping, at this point in his tenure, 10 years in, is still having to clean house among senior generals who he himself installed, that is an indication that he does not yet have confidence that he has achieved a kind of political discipline or just organizational and technical um, uh, uh, competence away from corruption that you would need in order to accomplish what everybody recognizes would be the most, you know, one of the most complicated military operations you could conceive going into Taiwan. So let's... uh... Let's go back to that comment by the Singaporean and South Korean investors who clearly are very impacted by what we just talked about in Taiwan, uh, if anything should happen there. Um, and them saying, I think that the the Biden-Trump issue, we can get into that in a moment, but I think the more relevant issue at the time when they made their comment to my friend Bram was the Speaker of the House and the vote of no confidence and, and McCarthy losing his job. Uh, and it all started with um, a congressman, Matt Gates, uh, from a plus 38R district in North Florida. We can dive into what a plus 38R district means. Um, but someone who comes from a political family, his father was head of the Florida Senate. Um, he has had a, um, I guess you could say a, a checkered track record since being becoming part of the U.S. Congress, and yet used the rule that he got embedded when Kevin McCarthy was in, I believe, the 11th round of eventually 13 rounds to become Speaker of the House. He put the rule in. McCarthy knew it was in there. And Gates turned around and used it against McCarthy. And boom, McCarthy's gone and the 
the United States House of Representatives is tossed into what has been for the last three weeks until we got Mike Johnson as the new Speaker of the House, somewhat of chaos. So I guess there are a couple things there. First of all, if I were outside of the United States or inside of the United States, how does one Republican congressman and seven colleagues shift the complete balance of power in the United States Congress is, I guess, the first thing I'd ask as a foreigner saying, why am I doing this? And I think second and and more importantly, Evan, is what does this mean going forward? Yeah, I, I think I, I you know if you're looking at it from the perspective of Singapore and you're saying to yourself, my God, that is no way to run a gin joint. Uh, you're right. I mean, it's a completely crazy scenario that we found ourselves in. Um, you know, the longest tenure without a speaker while Congress is in session uh, in American history and you know, what we're contending with, I haven't used this sort of phrase before, but I think what the way you would put it, as you put it so well, and sort of laying out these different pieces is that we're right now we're contending with a tyranny of the weak, which is to say that each of the elements you're describing is quite a weak force. Kevin McCarthy was a very weak speaker, one of the weakest speakers we've ever had, precisely because he allowed that rule uh, the that a single member could propose to vacate the chair, as it's known, and then all you would need is uh, a majority to get rid of the speaker. That right there meant that he was governing, to use Deng Xiaoping's phrase, like a woman with bound feet. I mean, in a sense, it was this kind of completely crazy way to try to run uh, your 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 conference, and it didn't work. As you saw that, you know, the moment that he kind of ran up against um, a political uh, opportunist like Matt Gates, um, it wouldn't he wouldn't survive. So you then have, and the reason, and then ultimately you get to somebody like Mike Johnson to extend this idea of the tyranny of the weak, Mike Johnson is a monumentally um, uh, inexperienced, arguably, I mean, not arguably, the data supports this. He's the most inexperienced Speaker of the House ever in American history. The reason he got the job, this is not a criticism of him, the reason he got the job is precisely because he has no history. There was nobody who could line up against him. You know, Kevin McCarthy was was removed by Matt Gates in effect, partly because of a personal dispute about the fact that Matt Gates was under investigation for ethics violations, and McCarthy was continuing that process. Um, Mike Johnson is, um, I would say, an utterly unproven asset. He's like some sort of you know new isotope that's been discovered in the lab, and we're just going to have to figure out what what he can actually do. I don't think anybody anybody knows at this point, um, except that we're going to have a big test of it because the government will shut down November seventeenth unless uh, Mike Johnson dips into his well of political. Um, uh, of political strategy and comes up with a solution. Let me let me before we move on to Mike Johnson because I do want to talk about him and 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 the implications of his leadership, if you will. Um, but before we move to that, one of the things I heard you say, Evan, that I thought was so interesting, um, and I think it's uh, I'm going to make the statement and then I'm going to ask you a question about it, which is you said there's something childlike about Kevin McCarthy that he seems to be living in a world of no consequences. I think I quoted you correctly on hearing you speak right. on a podcast about that which I thought was a very insightful and interesting way of looking at Kevin McCarthy as a, a, as a political figure. What I, for the life of me, can't understand is that he struck a deal with Hakeem Jeffries to keep the federal government running and not have it shut down. So he's sitting there with Hakeem Jeffries and does a deal that he knows is going to put his speakership at risk. So when he did the deal, everyone, everyone wrote, he's dead, he's going down. Why did he not strike a deal with Hakeem Jeffries at that moment and say, 
I'll keep the government open. You and I collectively will, but I need nine votes, nothing more. I need nine votes from you to make sure that I don't get voted out by my own party. Well, Why didn't he strike? What was it that would make him think that he could walk away from striking a deal with Hakeem Jeffries and not face that reality? Or why did he even do the deal to keep the government over? And I've heard him say, I did it because I, you know, I didn't think that was the right thing for our country, et cetera, et cetera. I give him great props for that. But if you're doing the deal, wouldn't you sit there and say, okay, I'm now putting myself at risk. I'm going to cut a deal now that I'm going to get the support from the Democrats to stay in office. I think that that it for him to get that deal, he has to have the leverage to get that deal. And the truth is, why would the Democrats do that for Kevin McCarthy? Kevin McCarthy had opened an impeachment investigation into the leader of the Democratic Party. I mean, that in and of itself it was regarded by Democrats as a that's an existential attack, essentially, on the political future and health of the Democratic Party right now. I don't think there was a single Democrat that said, you know, that Kevin McCarthy has always been there for us. Therefore, we need to be there for him. And the truth was, would Kevin McCarthy have done that for Hakeem Jeffries? Probably not. Why did Kevin McCarthy sign on to a deal to keep the government open? Was it because of a of a grand statesmanlike impulse about his health, about his, his belief that the fiscal credibility of the United States required it? Or is it that he believed that every, what every political historian will tell you, which is that the party that is blamed for shutting down the government, the one that is responsible for doing so, eventually suffers electorally. And I think that's what he was honestly uh, concerned about. I don't know. I don't try to peer into his head, but I think if you had to guess, look, I, when, I, when I sort of reflected on Kevin McCarthy's limitations as speaker and the reason why he ultimately was kind of, um, I would say, sort of mugged by reality is that it's because he lived day to day. Any for anybody who has dealt with him over the years will give you the same description of what it's like, which is he will say what was required to get through the day politically, literally just to get through that conversation. And if it meant that on any given day he had to say, OK, I'm going to say this to Matt Gates, I'm going to give him the power to vacate the chair. That's what he did. And then later when he said, I got to just say anything I can to Hakeem Jeffries to get through the day, that's what he did. And ultimately, you know, these checks come due. And I, I think there is a way in which this is a broader principle beyond just an individual player in the U.S. government. We're seeing that now for, for instance, some of the co-defendants in the Trump case in Georgia. These are people who felt like they could say anything they want in public. You can get on television and it's actually not against the law to do a lot of what they, or they didn't think it was against the law uh, to say what they did. And now they're discovering that in fact, they're being uh, not only charged with crimes, but that they are ultimately uh, they find it in their interest to plead guilty because they believe that they don't have much of a chance of winning that case. That is the the bottom line. That's where sort of the grown up consequences kick in. So as the Republicans sought to elect a new speaker, it became extremely evident the power and influence that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party. And we ended up getting a new speaker um, who not only had the full endorsement of Donald Trump, but as you pointed out, Evan, there were people who would not support someone who was an election denier in the Republican Party, in the caucus, who said, we will never put someone in the speakership. But yet when push came to shove to get a speaker in place, they actually voted to support Mike Johnson as the Speaker of the House. That flip seems to be very dangerous for our democracy. 
Well, it is it, it is an amazing uh, moment of visibility on what people's core commitments are. And there were people who had said, "I will never, I will never vote for an election denier." But ultimately, what they said is they looked down the barrel of reality that their own party was, uh, you know, looked pretty incompetent. It was unable to arrive at enough of a consensus, even among itself, set aside the Democrats, to be able to install a speaker. And I think they said, "Look, this is this is we're looking at political." This is political suicide here. So let's just get anybody. I mean, to quote somebody, uh, it was a uh, it was a Republican senator who said that I think anybody with a warm warm body and a pulse would satisfy, and that's where they ended up. So you know, look, the senators, by the way, the Republican senators have been looking at their colleagues in the House and have just been sort of holding their head in their hands and say, I can't believe that this is how they're going about things. Um, so it was you know it was kind of the political consequences of the next election uh, versus. Uh, is this person in Mike Johnson going to be capable of subverting an election in 24? I think a couple of things are worth mentioning about that. Um, this is a good news. There's there's a little bit of good news here, which is that the reform of the Electoral Count Act, which is something that happened that most of us didn't pay all that much attention to in the in the years since the January 6th insurrection, that has actually limited the ability of members of Congress to try to do again what they did in 2021, to try to oppose the certification of votes. In order for Mike Johnson to do that uh, in 2025, he would have to, one, win re-election because the House Democrat, the House at this point is going to be re uh, reseated before the January 6th certification of the vote, which means that if Democrats win control, um, that they will have the speakership and that they will be in the position of Certifying, but even more importantly, and I think let's say Demo- let's say Republicans do retain control of the House, that he would have to get twenty percent um, uh, of the of the body in order to actually um, challenge the certification of the votes. I, I, it seems unlikely that he would be able to get that. But unless we have a third party candidate, unless we have a third party candidate who comes in, yes. and either, if Trump and Biden are the uh, <laughs> right Republican and Democratic. Uh, nominees, a third party makes it so that nobody gets enough electoral votes to get it. It goes to the House and then it's just a straight out vote in the House, correct? That's true. Willie, it's only one o'clock in the afternoon. I can't start drinking yet. You're making me too, <laughs> it's 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 too frightening at this point. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the sheer fact that we have an election denier in the speakership is, uh, is uh, it's utterly uncharted. It's completely dangerous and utterly uncharted territory. I mean, I don't think we've ever been in a situation where somebody doesn't fundamentally respect the um, the validity of the democratic concept. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, that, the, that, that it has to be the consent of the loser to go away and try again another day. Um, I, you know, at this rate, there's nothing to guarantee that Mike Johnson is still going to be in the speakership by that point because there's so much turmoil within his party that he could... He could find himself back in his ordinary seat. But yes, it is completely dangerous. So Johnson, just as a little bit of background, because you've done real work on him and his, he's a constitutional lawyer. Um, He is uh, an evangelical Christian. Um, He is by far the most conservative uh, Republican that we've ever had in that type of a leadership role. Um, and the way that I heard you describe him, or many people have described him, is he's a steel fist in a velvet glove. He he has these glasses and a sort of appearance that he looks like, you know, your college law professor or whatever, just kind of this soft demeanor to him. 
But if you look at his track record and what he has done and what he has stood for, he has been a steel fist as it relates to uh, Christian conservative um, uh, ideology. Yeah, yeah. He he has, I mean, devoted much of his professional life uh, to advancing um, a vision of, of, of a kind of hardline conservatism that is, frankly, just pretty wildly out of step with where the American public is. I mean, as an example, he worked for the Alliance to Defend Democracy, which is sort of a conservative ACLU. Uh, he was a spokesman for the organization. You know, he he is very much a believer uh, that the abortion, uh, that, that the right to abortion should not exist in any real functional way. Just pause on that for a second and consider how out of step that is with the, where, where actually polls of the American public are. So- uh, I and think by the that, way, what's happened in Wisconsin, what's happened in Kansas, and which is just about to happen in Ohio. That's right. And and you know, from a if you want to just talk through politics for a moment, um, that's not a politics that is popular in this country. It's not something that wins elections. Um, you know, I, I think for all of the ways in which Democrats are kind of ambivalent or queasy about Joe Biden, uh, there will come a moment in November of 2024 when they will have a choice between a Republican party that has made it adamantly clear by installing Mike Johnson in the speakership and a whole variety of other ways, uh, what it seeks to do on questions like abortion or, you know, LGBT rights. I mean, there are just, a, these are just not positions that are broadly popular with the American public. That's a political problem if you're a Republican. And, um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, as you can see, I'm not putting my own personal views on this. I, I'm just describing the political reality of what the Republican Party is doing. And it is putting itself, it has lost the last three major elections in any real way. Um, it is putting itself further and further out of step with where the public is. And to, you know, go to, to remind ourselves of the McCarthy, what we might call the McCarthy principle is that eventually there are consequences and um, the electorate and the voters have a way of delivering. So, Let's talk about 2024 now and yeah. how things are are lining up there. Um, I think the first question at hand is um, you in your book written about Joe Biden point out that when Joe Biden, who was elected to Congress at like 12 years old, actually he was like, I don't know, 22 or whatever it was, um, that um, his first campaign slogan was Joe Biden. He knows the issues of the time. Like- he was running against someone who was older in Congress and his whole stick was he doesn't this old guy doesn't understand what's going on. I, the young guy, understand what's going on. Well, I think that narrative sort of flipped over on Joe Biden a little bit here. There is this growing sense that he is incapable of the job of president of the United States. And yet there seems to be this trap right now where there is no successor at hand and he sort of for his either his own ego or for the fact that he can't get rid of Kamala Harris and he needs the black vote and if he did anything with Kamala Harris he would lose the black vote that he is stuck in I've got to run and yet at the same time confidence in him seems to be eroding daily I think that there is a um this has been a very clear fact in the polls that the single biggest concern people have about him is his age and ability. This is among Democrats. And yeah, on the in Republican circles, this sort of idea has taken on a kind of, you know, super strength. I think it's it's going to be harder as anybody who's been paying attention to how Donald Trump communicates these days and you know, is should be concerned about the fact that he doesn't seem capable of 
recognizing the difference between Hungary and Turkey or knowing if he's in, you know, uh, Iowa or Idaho or, I mean, it's just kind of a number of things that, frankly, a 77-year-old running for president uh, is probably um, uh, prone to. Uh, I am mentioning this, obviously, all to make the point, Willie, that like, you know, it is one thing when we are to discussing good-natured questions, good faith questions about Joe Biden's capacity, um, but it's a tough one for Republicans to run on. Look, I, I think that at this point, Biden is um, is the nominee unless something really radical changes, and that's partly because for a long time, and I think you were a part of it. I, I know I was a part of it. Over the last few months, there's been dinner table conversations everywhere about it. Could there be anybody else? You know, why can't some other younger member of the party come in and take over that that uh, candidacy? And it's now reached the end of that period because in order to get on the ballot, you have to, uh, you, you would have had to already mount that kind of effort earlier. It, it's not, the window hasn't completely closed, but it's, it's, it's almost there. I think Nevada is the first state that's going to close its filing deadline. I can't remember when it is, but the, my point is that the debate about whether Joe Biden is too old is going to become too old pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the argument itself is antique because the, there comes a point when you have to um, recognize who is the person in the position. And he's not going to drop Kamala Harris from the ticket um, because of a lot of reasons, including the fact that it would say that the very first big decision he ever made as a candidate was wrong. And he's not going to do that. That's why people tend to not drop their VP candidates, no matter how unpopular they are. So, you know, I think um, they're, they, we're at the stage of the election now in which a lot of these issues are sort of in the realm of the of the abstract. There comes a moment much later in the process where people begin to say, well, this is not really a vote for Joe Biden. It's a vote against Donald Trump. And it turns out, you know what? Those count just as well at the ballot. And then on the Republican side, Evan, if we were having this conversation four months ago or when you and I were in Sun Valley together back in, in July, um, we'd be talking a lot about Ron DeSantis. Uh, we'd potentially be talking a lot about Mike Pence, who is now out of the race. Uh, and it appears that all eyes right now seem to be on Nikki Haley and the momentum that she is gaining in the in the, in the race for the Republican nomination as being it to any degree, someone who could even get on the radar screen against uh, President Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable how much she has gained over the course of the process. She's now, you know, according to a poll I saw yesterday, she's tied at about 16 percent with Ron DeSantis. He's they're moving in opposite directions. Um, but it's worth noting Donald Trump is at 44 percent. So there's just a they're in separate universes. At this point, Donald Trump is kind of um, running away with the Republican nomination. And I will tell you, I, I was uh, 100% wrong about what I thought Donald Trump's future might be on January 7th, let's say, 2021. You know, it just struck me as impossible that the party would uh, re-embrace this guy after how much damage he'd done to to just to, the, just to the Republican Party, to say nothing of the United States and to the image of democracy around the world and in the minds of its own people. Um I just thought that was impossible, and I was wrong about that. The party has coalesced around him for lack of a of a better, stronger option, um, or because they still find something of. And I think that you know that is a whole other longer conversation. It's sort of more or less the the conversation that drove my you know my last book, which is about trying to understand 
what could account for the strange, almost inexplicable popularity of an Ivy League educated heir to a family fortune who positions himself as a populist, uh, uh, as a populist uh, challenger to the establishment. How does that work? And it still works. Is the is the operative effect? I think you know one other thing on this is that, um, and this is almost a strange thing to say, but when our political system is as flawed and dysfunctional as it is right now, that there is still actually something kind of powerful about having this long drawn out electoral process, this campaign. You know, if the campaign was you know, two weeks long, as it is in some places. Ron DeSantis would have walked in and probably ended up as the nominee. But actually, people looked at him over the course of the process and decided, this guy's not for me. He's kind of a cold fish. I mean, this is I'm summing up a lot of column inches that have been dispensed. And that's and Nikki Haley has actually distinguished herself on the stage and elsewhere. She's done the reading. She knows she does the stuff. She's a strong candidate. The, the, the book that Evan just mentioned is Wildland. So to any of you who really want to understand how we are, how we got to where we are, I would strongly encourage you to get a copy of Wildland because it's a fantastic book and goes into all sorts of details on things that play to where we are today. Final question, Evan, before we go, which is obviously Trump has a lot of legal woes and a lot of legal challenges. Um, but my understanding or one of the interesting things that I read recently was that of all of the court cases against him, the one that could have the biggest impact on the 2024 election is actually the one going on here in Colorado to try and make it so that he can't be on the ballot in Colorado. Um, and so while he could be convicted on lots of the other felony counts that are up against him, he could still serve as president of the United States in jail. Um, whereas if he didn't get on the ballot in Colorado and other states followed, that would have real implications to him actually getting elected. Yeah, I mean it's it's a fascinating um, uh, sort of legal um, uh, uh, strategy that to challenge his legitimacy on the basis of the Fourteenth Amendment and the, the idea that he has participated in a uh, a kind of uh, challenge to democracy. I think to cut the story short, it will eventually get to the Supreme Court, and if in fact it goes that far, and if it gets to the Supreme Court. Then it'll be up to the court to decide: Does it want to eliminate a Republican frontrunner from the ballot? Um, I find it hard to imagine that a judge in Colorado will do that, uh, but we'll see. And look, ninety-one felony counts. I'll just bring this back to where we started today, which is in China. I remember having a meeting in Beijing at one point with an official who said, "You know, I was sort of talking about. He was asking about our politics. I said, "Well, you know, Trump's facing a lot of indictments." And off the top of my head, I couldn't remember how many. I said, "You know, he's facing dozens." And the guy said, 91. He's facing 91 indictments. So, yeah, they're watching very closely. The world is watching very closely. And um, uh, I think it's going to it's it's just going to be an extraordinarily uh, difficult thing for Donald Trump to get out of there without uh, ending up uh, on the hook for some of those. Evan, thank you. Uh, I'm super appreciative of your time. Uh, your article in The New Yorker is fantastic. Your books are fantastic. And your insight today has been equally as fantastic. Thanks for taking the time. Look forward to seeing you when I'm next in DC. And uh, thanks everyone for joining us today. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks. Thanks, Willie. My pleasure. See you, Evan. Bye-bye.